Hello and welcome to the J.S. Bach Files, a series of podcasts devoted to exploring the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. I'm Terence O'Grady, a musicologist and professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Bach's music has always been one of my greatest enthusiasms, and I look forward to sharing thoughts about his music with any interested listeners. We're starting today by taking a look at Bach's early cantatas. Bach wrote cantatas throughout most of his creative life, and some of his most fascinating music is to be found in these works, both the church cantatas he wrote for various Lutheran services and the secular cantatas he wrote for various courtly or municipal occasions. Of course, the amount of historical material devoted to Bach's musical accomplishments goes beyond extensive, ranging from the most careful scholarly studies to the most casual popularizations of his life and works. In this series of podcasts, we hope to occupy a middle ground, less exhaustive historically and analytically than many scholarly musicological studies, but perhaps more in-depth and with a greater sense of focus than many of the more popular investigations. Since we're starting with Bach cantatas, that means we're starting pretty early in Bach's career. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on the early details of Bach's life, but I do want to set the stage to some extent and establish a context for his achievements and how they were recognized in his day. As many historical studies have shown, Bach came from a long line of stellar professional musicians, most of them organists, cantors, and or composers working for various churches, large and small. The point is often made that even before Johann Sebastian came on the scene, Bach's name had become virtually synonymous with professional church musicians of the late 17th and early 18th century. So much so that it would not be unusual for a prince or church leader to say, bring me a Bach, when he was looking for a high-quality but versatile musician who could fulfill a number of different church music-related functions. Bach's father, a court and town musician at Eisenach, probably would have instructed his son in violin and some basic music theory. He also enrolled him in Latin school, where they taught mostly religious and Latin grammar, some arithmetic and history. Bach was, at that point, a slightly better than average student. But his father died in 1695. Bach was not quite 10 years old when it happened, leaving him dependent on an eldest brother, Johann Christoph, who was the organist at Ordruf and uh, a very competent musician. His brother did the right thing. He dutifully took care of the young Sebastian, even giving him keyboard lessons, although he was somewhat possessive about letting the young Bach uh, see some of his scores. His brother also enrolled him in the cloister school in Eisenach until Bach was almost age 15. There again, mostly religion and Latin studies, but also some geography, some history, arithmetic, even a little natural science, and of course music. Bach performed very well as a student there, and there was some talk of the possibility of a university education, but unfortunately no funds for it. And Bach was apparently somewhat sensitive about the lack of that university education all of his life, feeling that it put him at somewhat of a disadvantage when it came to going toe-to-toe with better educated church officials and his superiors. And over the years, Bach would have a reason to go toe-to-toe with those officials a number of times over issues large and fairly small. 
Meanwhile, at the Kleister School, Bach was singing as an unchanged treble voice in the choir, a temporary position, obviously, which added slightly to the family fortunes. Slightly before the age of 15, Sebastian left Ordruf to go to Lüneburg in northern Germany, some 200 miles away. There was no longer a place for him at Eisenach, and Bach might have been attracted to Lüneburg by the reputation of a famous organist there, Georg Böhm, of whom J.S. Bach was a great admirer. The school there offered free tuition and boarding for poor children with good voices, and Bach and a friend were listed at Troubles in the Matins Choir. It was in many ways a stroke of luck to land there. The music library associated with the church was quite good, and J.S. might have had the opportunity to see scores by a number of Renaissance polyphonic masters, Lassus, Monteverdi, and others, as well as 17th century sacred works by German masters, Buxtehude, Hammerschmidt, Schein, and Schutz. Also, great, Bach's great-uncle uh, Johann Christoph's music was represented there. Meanwhile, the young Bach spent his time well, becoming more proficient at organ and clavier, sometimes traveling great distances, uh, for example, to Hamburg, to hear Reinken play. But all good things must come to an end when you're a boy trouble, and eventually Bach's voice broke, and he was out of a job and had to leave Lüneburg. He was fortunate to then find a position as a court musician in Weimar at just over 18 years old, probably playing both violin and viola, as well as discharging other menial duties. Musicians tended to be versatile just to survive in this period, and fortunately Bach was more versatile than most. But it was his skill as an organist that would give the young Bach his greatest claim to fame and his first important professional opportunity. When Bach went to Arnstadt to examine a new organ uh, and to give the dedicatory recital, he impressed the locals greatly, and they offered him a job. Some interesting things happened at Arnstadt, and he almost certainly made his first attempts at cantata composition, but since no manuscripts appear to have survived, we're going to jump over to the next stop on Bach's odyssey, which is his stay at Mühlhausen. Now, Bach also has some family connections in Mühlhausen, and it wasn't long before he felt confident enough there to put down roots, even taking the important step of marrying his cousin, Maria Barbara. But although personally content, he did not have much opportunity to write the sort of church music he wanted to write, since his local church authorities leaned pietist, a strain of Lutheranism that was akin to Puritanism in its distrust of elaborate music. In fact, what few cantatas he did write were not for his home church, where he was employed, but for the church of a friend, a pastor Almar, who was apparently more interested in Bach's more elaborate musical compositions. We'll start by taking a look at one of these, BWV 131, Cantata 131, Out of the Depths I Cry, Lord, to You. You notice I'm using the English translation, and I'll be doing that most of the time. This is thought to be Bach's earliest surviving cantata, or simply concerto, as it would have been labeled then. And it's a pretty somber affair, not surprisingly, since it was probably written for a penitential occasion, most likely in reference to a very destructive fire that had earlier ravaged the city. The text of the opening chorus, and I'm using the fine translations by Francis Brown from the wonderful BachCantatas.com's website, which I'll be mentioning again and again. Out of the depths I cry, O Lord, to you, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears notice the voice of my pleading. 
The music unfolds somewhat mournfully at a slow tempo in G minor. The opening lyrical duet between oboe and strings in the instrumental introduction gives way to some equally pensive duetting between the sopranos and altos. Eventually, the tenors and basses join in to fill out the rest of the choral harmony. notice that my audio examples are pretty brief, in part because I don't want these podcasts that go too long, and in part because I don't want these excerpts to be in any way a substitute for the real recordings, of which some excellent ones exist, and the performers who so painstakingly put them together need to be supported financially whenever possible. In the next example, we get a pretty significant shift in momentum, when the text, Lord, Hear My Voice, is taken up by the voices, the style changes dramatically. The tempo goes from a languid adagio to a brisk vivace, and the choral voices turn from their lamenting tone to a crisp, almost demanding one. This more lively section segues directly into another tempo change, this time to Andante and an arioso duet between bass and soprano soloists. But this is not a conventional duet, the sort where both voices contribute more or less equally to the melodic interest. The bass begins singing, If you keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But when the soprano comes in, she sings in slower note values, mostly half notes while the bass is moving in quarters and eighth notes, a familiar chorale melody to the words, Have mercy on me with such a burden, take it away from my heart. The contrast between the slow-moving soprano line 
and the increasingly active solo bass line, which also benefits from some very nice accompaniment from a solo oboe from time to time, this contrast becomes even more apparent as the duet proceeds and the bass solo stretches out into increasingly long melismas. movement that comes next involves all the voices in what seems like something of a slow-motion fugue, a section where one voice introduces a phrase or theme, and other voices duplicated a little later, often a fifth higher. There are some expressive dissonances here, but not a great deal of energy and an unusual amount of word repetition. Some of that is to be expected when the different voices are tossing motives or themes back and forth, First the soprano has the theme and then hands it to the tenor, while the soprano goes on with a different counter-melody against it, that sort of thing. But here the word repetition is unusually extensive. The duet between the tenor and alto that follows uses much the same ploy as the previous duet. The tenor has most of the melodic activity, and the alto superimposes a slow-moving chorale melody against it. Of course, to the Lutheran congregational audience of the period, these chorales were more than merely slow-moving melodic counterpoints to the more active tenor melody. They were embedded with great religious and symbolic meaning. To the knowledgeable Lutheran listener, Bach was providing a counterpoint of ideas, each commenting on the other as much as a counterpoint of melodic lines. The chorus that follows, Israel, Hope in the Lord, concludes the cantata. It's a bit more robust, at least for a little while, but, once again, tempo changes come fairly frequently, and continuity may be a little bit of a problem, at least to modern ears. The music eventually comes to its textural climax in a fairly lengthy fugal passage. But Bach is, at this point, not yet a great master of such devices, and most commentators find that this particular fugue is somewhat labored and lacking in a sense of direction. Nevertheless, Bach shows in this very early cantata that he is a serious and inventive composer who has carefully studied the giants of the northern German tradition who came before him and is well on his way to achieving a mastery that would equal or surpass theirs. We turn now to cantata number four, Chris Lagen Todesbanden, Christ Lay in the Bonds of Death, obviously an Easter cantata. 
This is another very early cantata, first performed in Mühlhausen, probably in 1707 or 1708, and later revised for performance in Leipzig, which is the version we have today. This is an early example of a chorale cantata, a cantata in which the primary chorale melody permeates all sections of the cantata and the text is based closely on the text associated with the chosen chorale. Of course, all sacred Bach cantatas make a significant use of traditional chorale melodies. The cantatas typically close with a four-part setting of a chorale, which the congregation may have sung along with, and chorale melodies are often prominent in the opening chorus. Chorale melodies may make an appearance elsewhere as well, as we saw in the previous example, being worked into duets and other ensembles. So it's hardly news when we say that Bach cantatas make liberal use of chorales, just as the cantatas and other choral works by many of Bach's northern German precursors did. But it's really a question of degree here. In Christ Lay in the Bonds of Death, the traditional chorale melody, often referred to as Luther's Easter Hymn, which is in fact derived in part from an 11th century chant, Victime Pascali Laudis, that very famous chorale melody is found virtually everywhere, as we will see. We're going to start by listening to Bach's four-part setting of the chorale, which actually closes the cantata. I'm doing this because I want you to have the tune in your ears as you listen to excerpts from the other movements of the cantata. As you would expect, given the subject matter, the chorale is in a minor key, B minor, and the melody has a dignity and stateliness that few others can match, and the tune provides great opportunities for an inventive composer like Bach to seize upon various components of the melody, for example, its rhythmic identity, or its various interval patterns to use as the basis for variation. We hear next a little of the opening movement, an instrumental symphonia that begins by dwelling on the opening interval of the melody, a descending minor second, which actually sums up the pathos of the entire melody and the entire theme of the cantata pretty effectively. It then goes on to quote the entire tune, cloaking it in rich orchestral garb. Not all Bach cantatas begin with independent instrumental movements. For many, there is only an instrumental introduction, although sometimes fairly lengthy, to an opening chorus, so this opening symphonia is special on a number of levels.
next movement is based on verse 1 of the chorale text, and musically speaking, it's quite a bit livelier. The chorale melody is heard in the soprano in augmentation, that is, much longer note values than in its original form. In this case, relatively slow-moving whole notes and half notes rather than quarter notes. The other voices are newly composed and move more quickly, although also drawing at times from the chorale melody, most notably the dramatic descending minor second referred to earlier. The text is, Christ lay in death's bonds, handed over for our sins. He has risen again and has brought us life. For this we should be joyful, praise God, and be thankful to him, and sing hallelujah, hallelujah. The next movement, the text of which draws from verse 2 of the chorale, begins with an ostinato bass line, which is repeated with some variation throughout. The primary melody here is a variant of the original chorale melody. Again, the descending half-step is very important, shared by soprano and alto soloists. This creates some beautiful suspensions between the voices, and when I say suspension, I mean when voices overlap in such a way as to create dissonances and then allow the dissonances to slide into a consonant resolution, releasing the tension exquisitely. The text here is, No one could overcome death among all the children of mankind. Our sin was the cause of all this. No innocence was to be found. Therefore death came so quickly and seized power over us, held us captive in his kingdom. Alleluia. The next movement, based on verse 3, is both rousing and triumphant, matching its mood perfectly to the text. The chorale melody is sung by the tenor soloist with a distinctive cascading figure in the violin accompaniment, which is based on the initial notes of the chorale melody. The text, Jesus Christ, God's Son, has come in our place and has put aside our sins, and in this way from death has taken all its rights and its power. Here remains nothing but death's outward form. It has lost its sting. Hallelujah.
The next movement, drawing on verse 4 of the chorale, is especially tricky in its use of counterpoint between the voices. The chorale melody is heard in all voices, one at a time, in a line-by-line, imitative texture. Meanwhile, the chorale melody is also heard in augmentation in the alto, on and off, against the imitation in the other voices. The text, It was a strange battle where death and life struggled. Life won the victory. It has swallowed up death. Scripture has proclaimed how one death ate the other. Death has become a mockery. Alleluia. next movement, based on verse 5, which I'm only going to play a short excerpt from, is a slower-moving solo bass aria. The orchestra begins with a descending theme based on the familiar falling half-step we've heard several times before, and the soloist's melody is based on an ornamented variant of the chorale melody, with the orchestra providing an accompaniment which sometimes imitates and sometimes weaves expressive counter-melodies against the main vocal line. The text, Here is the true Easter lamb that God has offered, which high on the trunk of the cross is roasted in burning love, whose blood marks our doors, which faith holds in front of death. The stranger can harm us no more. Hallelujah. The final movement is based on verse 6 of the chorale. The melody, once again drawing from the chorale, is here divided between soprano and tenor and features a rhythmic ostinato based on dotted eighth and sixteenth patterns and triplets, which gives it a distinctly joyous personality. Thus we celebrate the high feast with joy in our hearts and delight that the Lord lets shine for us. He is himself the Son, who through the brilliance of his grace enlightens our hearts completely. The night of our sin has disappeared. Hallelujah.
The cantata closes with a four-part setting of the chorale that we heard at the beginning of our discussion. Christ Lay in the Bonds of Death, although an early work, is a remarkable achievement. It displays an astounding variety of musical moods while adhering to a remarkable economy of musical material, specifically the famous chorale melody which permeates each movement. Because of this, and despite the variety of moods that Bach evokes, it may be one of his most focused and integrated cantatas. We turn our attention now to the last of the early Bach cantatas, which we're going to discuss, BWV 106, God's Time is the Very Best Time, also known as Actus Tragicus. Although I've always been particularly fond of the previous cantata, some commentators see BWV 106 as Bach's greatest early cantata. Written while at Mühlhausen, this is a funeral cantata, most likely occasioned by the death of his uncle. It's rather unusual in form. Its text, a compilation of biblical verses and chorale excerpts, and formally, it's more a series of contrasting sections in a continuous flow than a series of separate and distinct movements. We'll hear just a few excerpts. The first is an introductory instrumental movement labeled a sonatina, although it has little to do with what that later, label later implies. Two recorders are featured, and the sense most listeners get is that of a gentle lulling feeling, the suggestion perhaps that death is somewhat like a restful sleep until called home. The opening choral section is, as many commentators have suggested, really more like a motet than a real chorus, and is often sung by a group of soloists rather than with multiple singers on a part. The opening sounds almost madrigalesque, with the alternating note motive of the opening instrumental section also playing an important role here. And in fact, the entire cantata has what many have described as an archaic air about it sounding in terms of both vocal and instrumental sonorities as if it could have been composed much earlier in the Baroque period. The text begins almost cheerfully. God's time is the very best time. In him we live, move, and are, as long as he wills. But the mood changes dramatically, taking on the character of a slower lament as the ensemble addresses the words, In him we die at the right time, when he wills. We'll hear from the beginning of this movement through the beginning of the lamenting section. Gottes Zeit, Gottes Zeit, 
A bit later in this lengthy movement, a fugue is introduced, a rather solemn and austere affair, with the most prominent interval in the theme being a dramatic descending tritone, initially B-flat down to E natural, an unusually dissonant and bitter interval. At the words, it is the old covenant, or law, man, you must die. Any reference to the old law is often treated musically with a fugue, because, like the law, fugues are strict. There are expectations, and they must be followed, and this one is unrelenting as long as it lasts. surprisingly wide range of emotions are on display here, given the generally somber context of the event, and in that respect Bach is showing a maturity well beyond his years, one of the reasons, no doubt, that historians and commentators have thought so highly of this early cantata. In our next episode, we'll travel with young Bach to Weimar and his prestigious appointment as court organist there. 